we're beginning a new sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark, and it is awesome. It's incredible. We have planned out several months in advance what this series is going to look like, and so today is the very first sermon in this series, and maybe this is the first time that we've ever preached. I believe it is. This is the very first time that we've ever had a sermon series in any one of the Gospels. What is the Gospels? There are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are sort of biographies of the life of Jesus and of the ministry of Jesus on this earth. But each one of them is unique. Each one of them are written specifically and with a target audience. I'll give you an example. Matthew has a lot of Old Testament references to it. So it dates, it, it, it references back to Genesis, back to Isaiah. Matthew is writing to the Jewish people. And his attempt in writing to the Jewish people is that they would understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And John is a universal gospel. He's writing to the Greeks. And so he appeals to the Greek philosophy. And he declares the word was in the beginning. The logos was in the beginning. The word was in the beginning. The word was with God and the word was God. That, that, that term word, Greek logos, was a philosophical term that the Greeks would have understood because in Greek philosophy, the logos was the creator of the world. And all things were created through the logos. But John takes that concept and he straps it on to Christianity and to Jesus so that they could understand this is the one that you were talking about. This is the creator of the world, Jesus. And so this morning we begin our series in the Gospel of Mark. And so Mark really doesn't name its author. So some books in the Bible will say this book was written by this person. Mark is unique in that it does not say who it was written from. But here's the great part about Christianity. Christianity has a long, more than tradition, it has a writing of historical documents from people that we call the church fathers. Those are people that were part of that first century and second century church. They initiated the church, they began the church, and they recorded much of the history of the church. From those folks, we hear that this gospel was written by Mark. And Mark is a really close friend of Peter. Do you notice something? Peter is supposed to be Jesus' main dude. He's Jesus' main guy. Jesus leaves him uh, the church to be responsible over. He is the chief apostle, yet very little is written from his hand. You have the first and second Peter, but not a recording of the life of Jesus. It is believed, historically speaking, that Mark interviewed Peter in order to write his gospel and that this gospel is vicariously the gospel of Peter through the writing of Mark. And so Mark is uh, the John Mark that you hear about in the New Testament, Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 12. He is the one who joined the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And he actually has a little bit of a disagreement with the Apostle Paul. And so he doesn't continue on any missionary work with the Apostle Paul. But at the end of Paul's life... Paul is in prison, and he is writing what's called the pastoral epistles from prison. 
And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, at the end of Paul's life, Paul requests that John Mark, or Mark, would come to him. So it's believed that this gospel was written anywhere from A.D. 55 to A.D. 59. So not far, not far removed, not too far removed from the life of Jesus. And remember I shared with you earlier, there is a target audience that's here. Mark's target audience is the Romans. And he is believed to be writing as a pastor to Christians who had previously heard and believed the gospel. And he desired for them to have a biographical account of Jesus' life. Mark's gospel is totally unique. It does not include a genealogy of Jesus. It does not include the birth of Jesus or Jesus as his young age the way the other gospels do. It directly begins at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist on the scene. And, John, and Mark's gospel is really interesting. The rest of the gospels kind of follow a regular timeline. It would be like, today Jesus did this, tomorrow Jesus did this. Mark's gospel is totally different. It, it, it's like he is, uh, uh, um, it's like he's someone that has ADD. You ever have uh, been around folks that maybe have extreme ADD? They, they like, they're, they're trying to focus on something and it's like squirrel, you know, over here. Like, it, 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 there's, there's a focus that kind of shifts towards things very quickly and very sharply. Mark's gospel is like that. It is called the gospel of action because literally you have one chapter and in one chapter you have several accounts that could have occurred three to four months removed from each other. And so the gospels kind of switch. It is the gospel of action. And Mark's goal is to present Jesus as the suffering servant, the saving Messiah. And so if you'd open up your Bibles with me, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, that would be incredible. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The title of this morning's message is Pointing Beyond Ourselves. Pointing Beyond Ourselves. And here's what it says, the first verse. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. The Son of God, as is written in Isaiah, the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And here's interesting. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Can, can anybody, you, uh, any one of you who's being realistic and real right now say that this was a weird brother? I mean, if you saw somebody that ate honey and locusts all day and dressed up in camel hair and a nice little camel skirt, I mean, wouldn't you think that that's kind of creepy and weird? I mean, how would we look at the Apostle John if he entered into this place? But his whole deal was that he was removed from society in order to be pure because the issues that were going on of that day were so serious. The Jewish people have fallen so far away from their historical mandate to follow God. And their culture had now been mixed up with Greek culture and Roman culture, 
And so John is here to set the path straight and prepare the way for Jesus. And here's his message. Here's, uh, here's Pastor John the Baptist's mission statement. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. About 300 years before John the Baptist comes on the scene, God had promised through the prophet Isaiah that a person would come and would announce the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah said this, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. John is that man. John was the man in the wilderness. Scripture tells us he wore clothing made of camel's hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, now let me, locusts could mean the little bugs that you see, or it could be a nut. It could also mean a nut. The carob that poor folks often ate. The honey may have come from wild bees, or it may have been the kind of sap from trees. Whatever it was, here is the point. John was removed from the society that had ostracized poor folks. And so he was eating the diet of the poor himself. And so John came baptizing in the desert reason and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. They left the city and went into the wilderness to be with him. Does this remind you of anything else, of any other account in the Bible? See, repentance is deeply rooted in the wilderness of your life. We just came out about two months ago from a sermon series in the book of Exodus. Wilderness is a big theme in the book of Exodus. So in order to prepare the way for Christ's coming, God had the people go back to the beginning. He had them return once again into the wilderness. And just as Israel had long ago been separated from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, by a pilgrimage to the waters of the Red Sea, John the Baptist was calling them once again to experience separation. This time it was separation from their slavery to sin. This is literally, baptism is literally the second exodus. In order for them to be prepared for the new covenant with God that was about to be revealed to them. And their willingness to return to the wilderness reminds us that Israel's history was one of disobedience and rebellion. And their desire for the folks that came out and heard John's message and received the baptism as repentance was to restart their relationship with God once again. And John's proclamation for the forgiveness of sins gives the people the assurance that God is willing to extend us his grace. So you might ask, why did God have them return to the wilderness? I think it's symbolic in the sense that they were called to a place where their dependence was solely on God. 
If you'll recall in the wilderness, it was in the wilderness that manna from heaven came upon them. It was in the wilderness that God provided quail from heaven. Their sustenance did not depend on their hunting. It did not depend on their skill. It did not depend on their capability. In the book of Exodus, the wilderness was the place where their dependence was solely on God. And in order to truly repent, they, like all of us, had to exchange their pride for humility. That is the only way forward in repentance, when we exchange our pride for humility. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and this baptism was the symbol of repentance. The mood, the spirit, the act of repentance was the main thing. See, repentance is more than penitence, or more than godly sorrow for having done something wrong. The Greek word for repentance quite literally means a complete change of mind, a new direction of the will, an altered purpose in your life. It is a turning away from sin and a turning back towards the Lord. Repentance is not merely remorse. Oh, Lord, I'm I'm sorry for what I did. It's not just admitting your mistakes. It's not just saying to yourself that you've been a fool. Who hasn't said these things of themselves? Who hasn't believed these things of themselves? These things are common. They're easy. They're obvious. Repentance is more. It's even more than being sorry for your sins. A Sunday school teacher asked a class what the word repentance means. A little boy put his hand up and he said, it's being sorry for your sins. Then a little girl raised her hand and said, it's being sorry enough to quit. It's being sorry enough to quit. Repentance is a moral and spiritual revolution. And because of this, genuine repentance is one of the hardest things in the world to do. And yet it's so essential to the life of a believer. If we're going to be restored to right relationship with God, repentance is key. Repentance calls us to a complete and total breakdown of pride. It calls to break down our selfishness. It calls the breakdown of the hunger of prestige that can come with wealth and fame. And it breaks down the self-will to where you are reduced to nothing before the sight of God so that God can make something out of nothing. A schoolgirl was saved and someone asked her, What were you before you were saved? What were you before you received Jesus? She answered and said, I was a sinner. Then the teacher asked, well, what are you now? And she answered, a sinner. And they asked, well, what's the difference? And she answered, before I was saved, I was a sinner running after sin. Now I'm a sinner running away from sin. Verse 5 tells us that those who are being baptized confess their sin. Sin is an infinitely stronger word than a mistake. It's an infinitely stronger word than a mistake. How many of you have used that term when you sin because it's sin is just too powerful of a word for you to use. So you say, well, I made a mistake. I had a pastor in a certain situation that I was dealing with that committed a grave moral error. And I'm a minority, but he whipped out his minority card quicker than anybody else could. And he said, well, you guys are doing this because of this. 
And here's what he said. I just made a boo-boo. That was the direct word that he said. He had slept with another woman who wasn't his wife. There was evidence of it. Didn't want to leave his church, and he made a boo-boo. Here's the thing. It's not a boo-boo. It's sin. Sin will destroy you. If you don't identify sin for what it is, sin will wreck you up. It will destroy you. It will chew you up and spit out your bones. And before you know it, you'll be stuck in a mire where you won't know which way is up. Sin is a stronger word than a mistake. It's also an infinitely stronger word than the easy, soothing, modern psychological jargon which the secular world so often substitutes for the word sin. And I'm not downing, hey, there's folks who I don't have a problem going to a therapist, a counselor, or anybody else. In fact, I recommend it to people to be able to do that. I think some people need it. It's necessary, and it's important. But the therapist cannot deal with your sin issues. It can, it, can, it can deal with self issues. It can't deal with sin issues. And so here's what happens when we go to a therapist sometimes. Uh, they can begin to use language that will diffuse the very weight of the thing that you've committed. And a psychoanalysis might go something like this. I have followed too much the inhibitions and self-expressions of my own complexes. You can reduce your sin to sounding like it's just a disorder that you have. And here's the thing. That's not the truth. These words that we use, this escapist mentality from the weight of what sin really is, will never liberate us. Those words that I just shared, a psychoanalysis into you. And why you commit sins will not liberate you. Here's what will. I have sinned against your sight and against heaven and I repent. That'll do it. Nothing short of repentance can lead us out of the disasters that we create for ourselves in our lives. Our wills literally need to be set in a new direction. We need to turn away from the fatal scramble for power, prestige, and for advancement. In the forefront of John's call to repentance was his knowledge of the coming of the only one who can and will forgive anyone who truly repents of their sin. Here's the thing. If you believe in a weak term for sin and brushing sin under the carpet, then the power of Jesus' resurrection, the power of his death, the power for him to deal correctly, appropriately, and justly with your sin is diminished. You need to recognize the weight of what has been done so that you could experience the freedom If not, it will always go sliding right under the carpet in your life and sliding right under the carpet in your life. And before you know it, it'll be 30 years that you've been sliding under the carpet and there's things that you just won't be able to hide that will be crawling under that carpet in your life because you never dealt appropriately with it. His message was this, after me will come someone more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John's entire message was about pointing beyond himself to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
this needs to be the entire message of our life as well. As a great evangelist as he was, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you with eloquent or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's great to study. It's awesome for the pastor to study. It's great for the people to study. But there is no substitute for the reality of who Christ is. There's no substitute for the life-changing work of Christ. There are people that are far smarter than I that have studied Christianity, far smarter than I. They've studied far more than I have. Yet the difference maker in between the academic halls sometimes and the sanctuary is that Jesus can transform facts into reality in your life. There's people who have written tons of books about the life of Jesus, and they lead a powerless, non-victorious life. They're Christians, but they're nominal. They call themselves believers, but they don't practice. You can have knowledge, but if it doesn't point to Jesus, if it points to you, your academic intuitions, then something is wrong and something is off. The Apostle Paul, who had studied under the Harvard of his day, very well-recognized rabbi, Pharisaical, from a Pharisaical uh, Jewish school, Rabbi Gamaliel. He studied at his feet. As a matter of fact, at one point in scriptures, the Apostle Paul literally lists all of his credentials when the Jews begin to question him as to who he is. He writes a letter and he lists all his credentials. Of a Jew, I am a Jew. From the tribe of Benjamin, I am. And he lists his credentials, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he lists his credentials of his life. And him who studied under all these major Schools, the major academic institutions of his day said this, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to rely on my academic intuition. I'm not going to rely on those things to try to present to you a convincing argument. This is Jesus' job. It's Jesus' work. And it's him that takes the words from my mouth and transforms them to living waters for your life. When we speak to others, are we trying to get them to be impressed by us or by Jesus? When I go to people and I shake their hands and I ask them, hey, how are you? Who are you? Very first thing that comes up right after somebody's name is their profession. Some of us are so identified, we're so tied down by our profession that when we lose that and when we retire, we lose a part of who we are. Because it almost becomes intertwined with our character. Here's the truth. What you do is not who you are. Who you are is greater than what you do. You don't have to impress anybody. By who you are or what you do, it doesn't matter where you work, how much money you make, who's in your bank account. The great equalizer is Christ. When we serve others, we're not just looking for recognition for ourselves. Do we want them to know that it is not I that's doing this, but Christ who lives in me? Are we seeking recognition for everything that we do? Or are we trying to point to Jesus through our acts of service?
Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to have pride? Have pride in him, not in yourself. How badly do we want others to come to know the liberating and transforming power of Jesus Christ? See, when we point beyond ourselves to Jesus, we are not only freed from the heavy, self-conscious burden to impress people with our credentials, but our entire lives are turned outward as we are transformed into joyful and expectant disciples of the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. And once we've gotten a taste of this kind of living, everything else will be as bland as cardboard. I experience this in ministry all the time. I say, Crystal, every time I go to a pastor's thing, I'm just talking to my wife. I'll be as honest with you as I am with her. Every time you go to a pastor's thing, you go introduce yourself. Oh, where do you pastor? Oh, uh, pastor here. What's the name of your church? Oh, the name of my church is this. How big is your church? I use... I use this term, it's, it's, it's not fully appropriate, but I tell Crystal, pastors, every time I go to a pastor's meeting, it's like a piss match. I'm not identified by what I do. I'm identified by who I am. You want to get to know me? Know who I am. My, my, my thing is Christ. My thing isn't me. It ain't the size of my church. It isn't the name of my church. It ain't where it's located. It isn't what you do. It isn't the location of your employment or what you do, how much money you earn, how much you do in an hour. What matters is who you are in Jesus. If that's solidified, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Every word and action of John the Baptist, I'm sorry for anyone who I offended by that. Every word and action of John the Baptist pointed toward Jesus Christ. And this is where John found his greatest significance. When John saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When you are, the baptism in water is one thing. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is something else. When you pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happened in Acts chapter 2. It's the initiation of the church. The Holy Spirit comes down. The word that the Bible uses for that is he literally comes down like a powerful anvil with great force. And he distributes gift to the church so that people can see the miraculous power of Christ. And So when we open ourselves to the supernatural work of God. When we open ourselves to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's not something that John could have given. It's not something that the preacher could give when they baptize you or whoever baptizes you when you get into that water. It is a transformative power that surpasses the waters that you enter. It is a baptism by fire. It's a baptism that distributes gifts, gifts of prophecy, the gift of speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, gifts of healing, miraculous work. This is what is distributed when the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon someone. It is something that Jesus gives. Jesus Christ is the church, correct? The body of Christ. We're called the body of Christ, are we not? When you are baptized in the waters, it is the Holy Spirit that begins a convicting work in your life 
I need to change. There needs to be a repentance. There needs to be a public recognition that I, have, that, that I am undergoing a process of changing my life. And so you say to somebody, hey, I want to be baptized. I want to go into the waters. And we believe that the Holy, though, though we may hold you, though you may enter in yourself, we believe that the scriptures teaches that it is the Holy Spirit who baptizes you into the body of Christ so that you are now a member of the body of Christ. That's what happens when you receive Jesus as Savior. With the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's different. It is the Jesus himself baptizing you into the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the functioning work, the guiding work of the church in this day. Jesus is all important. He is the king. He is the head of the church. He is supervising the church. He is looking after it. But it is the Holy Spirit that brings conviction, draws people near to Christ, makes them more like Christ, and distributes the gifts. And so when John says, my baptism is minimal compared to the one that comes to baptize with fire, the one to give you power, the one to set people free. It is that baptism that you want to be looking for. I find that all true greatness, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I'm going to find that all true greatness consists of pointing to someone beyond ourselves. That someone is God. When I don't point to myself, when I point to God, something incredible happens. Baron Bunsen, he was, uh, Von Bunsen was a, a European noble. And here's what he said of his wife as she was dying and breathing her last breath. He said, in thy face I have seen the eternal. In thy face I have seen the eternal. The end of her life, towards the end of her life, her life had a Godward reference. Do your lives have a Godward reference? Do our lives carry any strong suggestion of who is mightier than us? Or are we folks who are self-enclosed and self-absorbed? Here's the real question. Do you ever remind people of Jesus? Do you ever remind people of Jesus? Are we pointing to ourselves or beyond ourselves? There's a fundamental difference. I love the United States of America. It's, it's an incredible country. I have served it in its military. I intend to do so again. Any of you guys know I'm in the process of returning back to the military as a chaplain. continue to be your pastor but there's something wrong with our culture in America where we value things over people where we have a term keeping up with the Joneses for how we need to keep up with society friends things will not save you you don't need to impress people with the car you drive the home you live in or the toys you play with. Little kids have dolls and action figures. Adults have TVs and game systems and loudspeakers and new cars. And There's no one to impress in this life. You don't have to impress anybody. 
what you do need to focus is impressing upon them who Jesus is. And so I pray this morning that as you've listened to these words and as we have begun this series in the book of Mark, that genuine repentance would be a mark in your life. That you would look at those wilderness moments in your life and would say, this is a time that Jesus is taking me towards steps towards repentance because he has something great for me to achieve, something better for me to do. For you to recognize the weight of sin. And as you have dealt with the sin issue in your life, as Jesus deals with the sin issue in your life, that you would point the way to Christ. Point the way to Christ. I want to pray with you. Would you join me in a brief prayer? God, we come before you. Lord, when we say the word sins and repentance in our culture, our media which refuses to even vocalize those words because of their significance. Father, let us understand the weight of our sin that we might understand the weight and the freedom that repentance brings. Father, that we might not look at something as, as a boo-boo or a mistake. That we might see things for what we've done. The destruction that our hands have caused as a result of sin. And that we would freely repent before you. No matter what grave error that we have ever done. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Would you begin changing hearts and minds and lives this morning as your spirit reaches out to people to draw them near to you? We bless your name, God. For those of you who are thinking the things that I've committed are too strong for God to forgive them in one second. I want to remind you of the murderous and adulterous king, David. Who in the New Testament, the Lord referred to him as a man after his own heart. How does a murderous adulterer. David was a murderous adulterer and a womanizer. He invited a new woman to his bed every night. And he passed down an erroneous view of sexuality to his children to the point where his sons became mired in the muck of sexuality. David the king, who the only way that they knew that the king was dead was by shoving a woman in his bed and seeing if he did anything with her. And when he did not engage in relations with that woman, they knew that the king had passed away. That David, the David who begun his life in victory and ended his life in destruction, there was redemption for him. There was grace for him. And Jesus saw him through the eyes of a loving God and not through the eyes of the sins that he'd committed. And so if there be repentance for David, 
If there be repentance for the Apostle Paul, who was a murderous terrorist of Christians, then how much more should there not be repentance for us? How much more does God not look on us with favor this morning as we drop our sins before him in this sanctuary, in this place? Make a commitment to repent, to turn away. Honor Jesus through the life that you live. I encourage you to begin to process these words because it's key to the Christian life. Without repentance, we can never see the Lord. Because it is only through repentance that holiness is showered on our lives.